0: Welcome to Talking. This is DG Martin, and my guest is uh, one of um, uh, is, is a internationally known, respected uh, writer of fiction, uh, Jeffrey Deaver. But he's also somebody who lives amongst us in Chapel Hill and loves Chapel Hill. So I want to talk to him about his latest book, uh, which is called The Midnight Lock.
1: And Jeffrey Deaver, welcome. Well, thank you, DG. Always enjoy our conversations.
0: Well, let's talk first about The Midnight Lock. This is your—maybe your 31st, 34th—I mean, uh, it's— We can uh, can
1: up the scale a little bit. This is my uh, 44th novel.
0: 44th novel, and your—
1: And it's the 15th Lincoln Rhyme novel that your listeners may know from uh, uh, The Bone Collector, of course. If not the book, the movie starring Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. And he has proved a perennial favorite among my readers— so, uh, and you know, my job um, is to give readers what they want. I, I sometimes see authors who say, uh, "Well, I'm the, uh, I'm in the driver's seat. Uh, I write a book, and the reader takes it or leaves it. Doesn't matter. It makes me happy." So there it is. I think that's complete nonsense. Uh, I create a product, just like Procter and Gamble or a Ford Motor Company, and I look very long and hard at what my Uh, my readers want. And I try to give it to them. And sometimes I fail. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago called The October List. It was a thriller that went backwards. And some people loved it. And I see you've got a copy right there.
0: Uh, I don't want to get off topic, but we could do a whole (laughs) series of programs on The October List which, but, but let's let's do take a we're gonna get off topic for just a minute, it's sure. your fault. You but <laughs> but, I take but full the trip. October list for me showed your willingness to experiment mm-hmm. and to uh, probe other ways of telling the story uh, for, uh, What what Jeffrey Deaver did was instead of starting at the uh, beginning and telling the story to the end, he just started at the end, the very conclusion, mm-hmm. and then wrote backwards to the beginning and somehow or another, uh, stretched it and directed it so that it made sense and
1: kept the, It was suspenseful going that way. Well, thank you, Gigi. My my goal in that was uh, writing a book that had a surprise beginning. Now, if I have any trademark in all of those novels and the roughly eighty short stories I've written, it's surprise. It's a twist. I like the the, the big surprise ending. Um, And usually my books have several surprise endings because my readers are brilliant. (laughs) You get to the ending and there's you get to the ending and there's still 50 pages to go. You know you're reading a Jeffrey Deaver book. It's called the quarter inch factor. There's a quarter inch of pages left and it looks like (laughs) the book's over with, but then they keep going. Well, I love the uh, uh, the concept of surprises and twists and turns, uh, but I thought, well, all surprise endings. Could we have a surprise beginning? So the book opens on Sunday night. This is the October list I'm speaking of. It begins on uh, Sunday night, and uh, that's chapter thirty-six. Then we, that's page one, but not page five. We keep reading through it. That's chapter thirty-five, and we about two hours uh, earlier. And we go all the way through the books until the book until chapter three. Everything we've read is turned on its head. The people aren't whom they seem to, who they seem to be, and then chapter two turns that on its head and chapter one is a complete reversal of everything and I, as i was saying um I, I i wrote it for my readers i write everything for my readers and i i wanted uh, them to experience something a little bit different i think of um time's arrow by uh, martin amos i think of um the um the play merrily we roll along by stephen sondheim and of course the wonderful seinfeld episode known as pinter um, and that was the Seinfeld episode that went backwards in time. And those were my inspirations for this. And I thought, well, people seem to like that. And if I handle it correctly, I can. I think I can pull it off. And some people absolutely loved it. Uh, some people uh, were, you know, understandably uh, confused by yeah. it. And it's a confusing book. Uh, but if you st- stick with it, all will be explained. Uh, But, uh, you see, thinking of my readers, that was the second book I did that year. I had, I believe it was a Lincoln rhyme book that came out as well. So this was like a little bonus. It's not a long book. It actually has some original photographs of mine in it. And uh, that was to kind of help the reader along. But... Even then, the the photographs are twists and turns, surprises. So uh, people really seem to enjoy it. But anyway, I, I digress a bit. I want your listeners to know that I write um, more uh, in a more focused way than I talk, uh, just, just for the record there. But um, uh, I always think about what readers want. They like Lincoln Rhyme. Uh, so this is my 15th Lincoln Rhyme, The Midnight Lock. And in fact, as we speak, I uh, took a break uh, this morning from writing uh, my next Coulter Shaw book. He's another series character I have, and outlining my next Lincoln Rhyme book for oh my gosh, 2023 now. Oh, if I weren't sitting down, I'd have to sit down because I, I feel exhausted at that. Uh, <laughs> Just schedule. thinking. So
0: you're writing you're you're writing one book, and outlining the book that will follow. That exactly. Book. And so um, let's let's uh, the the one that will follow is a Lincoln Rhyme yes book. So tell us a little bit about. The, the book that we're going to talk about if we get to it <laughs> is the Lincoln rhyme book. so tell us um, a little bit about this guy who is the character of fifteen of your
1: books sure um, i um, well I'll, I'll back up a little bit there's a uh, kind of a um, uh, an old saw about Hollywood uh, that is is kind of funny but also has an element of truth in it. when a producer is looking for a new product, and they call them products out there, to turn into a a movie, uh, you know, a book or maybe a play, or it could even be a short story. The producer wants something that has never been done before, completely original, and yet has been wildly successful in the past. And we kind of (laughs) laugh at that because it's a contradiction. It it kind of defines Hollywood. But as I say, there's some truth to that. So I want to make sure readers who know my I um, know my writing style, which is a very fast-paced book, takes place over only a few days, has lots of twists and turns, um, and um, has characters I think are fully, fully formed. I, I want to make sure I give my readers that type of book over and over again. I don't want them to uh, say, oh, the Jeffrey's book is interesting. I don't, that's, that's anathema to me. I want them to say, wow, I survived that book. And so, so that's the template, the, the book that moves very quickly. But at the same, so that's what's been successful in the past. Now I need something original. And that is a different kind of hook. And about 20 years ago, I was going to write a book with that template, I call it, or that formula, but I needed something new, and I had just seen a thriller film. And with all respect to people like Tom Cruise and Bruce Willis, who doesn't love those movies? I, I, I you know, Mission Impossible and all those, uh, all those great explosive, uh, explosive scenes, car chases. But at the end, it, it, there's a scene where the hero is being uh, beat up by the villain. Is there any doubt in anybody's mind that Tom Cruise is suddenly going to remember that his father? taught him to kickbox when he was 10 years old. It was a repressed memory. The memory comes back to him now, and he kickboxes the villain over a cliff because at the end of these movies, there's always a cliff. (laughs) Well, um, and I thought, you know, nothing wrong with that. I enjoy it too. But the fact is, wouldn't it be more satisfying to have a hero who had to outthink the villain? And um, so I came up with an idea of a new modern-day Sherlock Holmes kind of character, a forensic detective, brilliant, brilliant man, but someone who could not karate kick, who could not pull out a gun and Mm -hmm. shoot the villain. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll create a character tied up with duct tape, because duct tape is very popular in books and movies. And then I thought, no, that's cheating. I want him to be, um, by his very nature, unable to do that. And so, since I have a little personal experience with paralysis—nothing like a quadriplegia or even paraplegia, of course—I uh, I thought, well, I'll make him a, a paraplegic—that is, paralyzed from the waist down. Then I thought, no, no, I'm going to go all in on this, and make him uh, paralyzed uh, from the the neck down, and deal with those issues in addition to being a consultant. Of course, he doesn't—he's no longer an NYPD officer, but he's a consultant working with the uh, NYPD, and. Um, I had no idea that the character would become as popular as he has been, but uh, there's a clamoring for these books. Of course, the movie helped. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, is that you attribute the popularity
0: to your talent as a, as a writer or to the uh, popularity of Denzel Washington? To
1: both, to both, I think, because I, uh, I, I, as I say, I take my readers... Um, they are in the forefront of my mind when I write a book. Um, I'll give you an example. This morning... I'm working on my new Coulter Shaw book. That's the character from the uh, Never Game, and I think next year to be a, a CBS a primetime TV show. Um, but So I'm, I'm looking at a page I've written probably 20 times, and it just wasn't right, because I thought readers would stumble on on the prose. It, it was kind of a complicated situation. And so I rewrote it again. And finally, just before I came to visit with you, I think I, I nailed it right. But it's it's not for me. That didn't make me feel good. Well, it did to the extent that now I know it's going to work for the for the readers. And uh, so that's what, um, you know, basically that's what this business is all about. So all
0: this, um, excuse me for interrupting you, but is all this um, just you or have you got somebody's buddies- That you feel like you want to, and with a critical page like this, is you want to show it to and say, I think this works now? Or do you just make that judgment on your own? No,
1: that's my judgment. I've been doing this for 40 years now, and um, I know what works. I listen to my feedback um, from uh, fans. I don't really uh, care much for critics. Often critics write to hear themselves right. But fans are honest about it, they have no axe to grind other than uh, being, um, you know, angry. Or being happy. Well, about how, how like do they write you, or they just? I get uh, emails, yeah, and also on Amazon, they they write things. Uh-huh. You know, my books have two or three thousand reviews on uh, Amazon, and then there's a um, 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 website called Goodreads, which right. I would recommend. It's a very, very good.
0: Uh, so you'll read those plan. and mm-hmm. uh, take. What you might take if, yeah, if it helps you exactly. to be a better, and, and better some are, writer.
1: You know, some are. Some people get very angry. They hate what I've done. Uh, the I mean, the latest uh, book, well, Midnight Lock, for instance, has about three thousand um, reviews. It's uh, for the majority of them are four and five star reviews. There are some things that people uh, uh, people don't like. Of course, I laugh about the Amazon reviews and when this began uh, regarding Mr. Deaver's new book. Uh, if I could give it no stars, I would have. <laughs> and then he explains, when the book arrived, the jacket was torn. Oh, that was his problem. <laughs> that was his problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we got to take a break. Uh, for those of you who joined us late, I'm visiting with uh, Chapel Hill's own Jeffrey Deaver, and we're talking about his uh, latest book, Goodnight Night Block. Uh, he and I will be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. If you joined us late, my guest is Jeffrey Deaver. He's the best-selling author of, you know, if I give you a number, it'll be not enough. 30, 40, 50 uh, novels, including 15 uh, novels that feature or or, or the main character is a guy named Lincoln Rhyme. And uh, Jeffrey Deaver, a a few minutes ago, you told us that he's really a, a total paraplegic. He's got maybe he's got a little bit of one finger or something like that, mm-hmm. but he is now uh, a renowned consultant to the New York Police Department because he can solve crimes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what is he into in your latest book, Midnight sure. Lock? Um,
1: the Midnight Lock again, the fifteenth uh, Lincoln Rhyme novel. Um, I'll, I'll kind of set the stage for you here. Um, opening scene, first chapter: uh, woman wakes up. In the morning, New York City, and um, she uh, looks around her apartment. And something doesn't seem quite right. The window's open, and she never leaves the window open. She believes um, there's a um, the furniture is slightly rearranged in her apartment. Uh, her slippers are not beside the bed where she thought she left them. Now she'd been out with the um, with her friends the night before, had a couple of, of drinks, uh, but she said, "But I wasn't. I wasn't drunk. Maybe a little tipsy, but." This is strange. And then um, she realizes that someone has been in her apartment, and there's a knife missing in that block, you know, that wooden block that we keep our kitchen knives in. And she, of course, panics. And then me, being the manipulative writer that I am, we cut away from that scene to something else. And it turns out there's a villain, the, the key villain in my book is nicknamed the locksmith. And we don't know his identity until much later, And um, he never touched her. He never hurt her. That's not his M.O. Uh, What he does, for reasons that are slowly unpeeled throughout the uh, book, he um, breaks into people's houses and does just that, rearranges uh, things. And the worst he ever does to them is sits down in a a chair next to the bed with a glass of their wine— Eating a ham sandwich, he's made from their food, and leaves the plate kind of like a Santa cookie next to it, and then he then he leaves. So of course, people are, uh, you know, say, well, he's not a serial killer. How scary is that? Well, the effect is um, uh, mental uh, mental pain, and these these people, men and women, um, they they sell their apartments. They just leave because their space has been violated. And I thought, what a terrible terrible thing that that is. Well, Lincoln Rhyme and Amelia Sachs, Amelia played by Angelina Jolie in the movie, uh, they get on the case. um, And then they they start investigating this fellow. And they realize there's more to it than it than it seems. And uh, he may be working alone, maybe working with somebody else. And uh, I layer on top of that, a a story about um, a, a media magnate, and now it turns out I had never seen. Frankly, I don't watch much TV. I had not heard of the show Succession, which I since have fallen in love with. But when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was writing the book, it's about a um, um, this uh, media magnate who would be your, who is sort of the model of the a real person. It that could you, be like Roger Stone, or uh, is that is that the fellow's name? The out fellow who's, Fox out of Fox. who's uh, yeah. yeah 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 okay. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I know there have been so many people in trouble lately, I can't remember which one that was, but but uh, someone like that, or William Randolph Hearst of a different generation, but these people who have such control because of media. And um, uh, so that's a subplot going on. Uh, the the uh, traditional journalism uh, up against the, the new journalism and what I'm calling the um, – um, you know the the fake journalism now. Depending on which side you're on, <laughs> we we both use that that term. Um, I tend to side with the well. I don't tend to side at all. I draw a firm stand with a traditional journalism, uh, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, uh, The Washington Post, and uh, you know many other fine magazines and and radio stations too. NPR, uh, the the Newshour, and, and network. And uh, WCHL, of course. Uh, th- that was going to be my first one, <laughs> but I didn't know if that would be too self-serving. But thank you. Um, and uh, th- these are – you know, these are uh, – well, I have a, a degree in journalism. And um, I learned that you never publish a story until you have talked to multiple sources that confirm what the other sources have said. If you don't do that, you don't run the story. You don't speculate. You present both sides and give the other side – in other words, if somebody says A – and that's inflammatory toward uh, toward the other person, you go to the other person give them a chance to say B. They may choose not to. Um, I don't know if you've listened to some stories where a, uh, I'm sure you have when a, a reporter said um, uh, so-and-so did not respond to requests for comment, but they gave them the opportunity to comment. But that's, um, that's the art and science of... Uh, of journalism. And I, I firmly believe in that. And the weaponization of media um, has been very troubling to me. I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, Roadside Crosses. And I think I was a bit um, in the forefront of this. The One of the main characters, there's several characters, is a blogger who um, has a, a lot of following. Uh, you know, he's not a QAnon, sword, and I, Midnight Lock gets into the QAnon uh, as well, or QAnon wannabe, but uh, the blogger in my book, Roadside Crosses, it's revealed at the end, and I hate to give surprises away, but uh, it, uh, it is kind of an interesting point. Um, he wrote it as a weapon. All his blog posts, I shouldn't say all his blog posts, some of them were... Um, uh, were legitimate little, uh, set in Northern California, some were legitimate little travelogue kind of things. But his um, uh, the majority of his, his posts um, were his, uh, for various reasons, attacking someone or something or leaking false information, uh, basically for pay. He, he didn't do it you know because he felt this was he felt he was being paid by somebody to do it, or he was being paid by the ads that uh, no, 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 he was being paid by somebody to tell false uh, false stories. And um, that was that was six, seven years ago uh, before we now see the uh, uh, you know so much of the um, you know, I think the uh, uh, just lame uh, lame uh, media outlets uh, you know, dressing themselves up as the truth. When in fact it's uh, nothing but. Well, the there's
0: truth. a piece of your new book about that particular situation that we have. But the, the I guess the uh, main driver of the story on the journalism side uh, is the family dynamics of the owner of the owners of the mm-hmm. of the big newspaper media empire. Tell us what you will about that and how you read, how you get them into the story.
1: Sure. <clears throat> the um, the fellow I talked about, the locksmith, this um, serial breaker inner, I don't think that's a word, but you get the idea, <laughs> serial breaker inner, um, uh, is not content just to move things around in the apartment. Now, he doesn't hurt anybody again, but he leaves a calling card. And the calling card is the page from um, what um, – you know, we would call a tabloid journalism that has made this family phenomenally wealthy um, by reporting, like
0: one of the New New York Post or the, uh, even, even
1: beyond that. I mean, the New York Hmm. Post is, you know, legitimate uh, journalism. Um, uh, What was the, what was the, uh, it was either the Post or the Daily News that had my favorite headline of all time. Um. Headless body found in topless bar, <laughs> uh, and that was true apparently. So, so you know that, that's 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 reporting. That's that's fair reporting. I'm talking about the tabloids. The we we make, and I'm not going to say the word, but we make stuff up, uh, and that has made this family incredibly wealthy, and um, uh, the the magnet the fellow is um, does not have a lot longer on earth. He knows that, and he's decided he's um, he's gone in the wrong direction. And that he used to be a um, a, a, a died-in-the-wool, true, traditional journalist, and he wants to um, uh, dissolve the, his this empire and open an institute for uh, journalism, journalistic ethics, and um, it will do things like um, uh, provide legal defense funds for international journalists who are being uh, repressed and jailed. Often, this is true. In some countries, I mean, we hear about the, uh, at least, I know, of at least two situations in uh, Russia where journalists were, were murdered, uh, you know, uh, apparently, I'm winking now, but, you know, your listeners can't see that. Apparently, a street crime, a random robbing, but I suspect, uh, well, everybody suspects it's something mm-hmm. other than that. Anyway, he wants to do do something good, and um, uh, the, the conflict is, um, that's within the family people say that's not what what the audience wants they don't care about that they don't care about truth anymore uh, they care about what uh, what we do it's like um, it, it, it's it's like uh, you know opium for the masses they they pick this this up and of course there are uh, tv stations too that are even uh, more widely watched or more uh, widely taken advantage of than the uh, uh, than the media, because people don't read as much anymore as they they listen to things radio and uh, radio and TV. and there's a blog of course as well and and podcasts and um, uh, th- that uh, there are people in the family who say this is it's just you're a dinosaur that's that's not what uh, what people want now. And his point is that well, um, yes, yes, they do they they do want honesty, they do want truth. And uh, he's he remains optimistic. I, I try to remain optimistic too. Although, I have to say, for the last couple of years, uh, sitting in a dark room and writing and watching media, watching what is unfolded politically and culturally, uh, it's. I, I think my book was maybe hit the nail on the head a little, <laughs> a little more than I would have liked, because there is a, a great deal of, uh, you know the. Uh, this nonsense out there that is taken as as gospel and you know you can't sit down and argue with someone about it it is completely useless you cannot say yeah i looked at the facts thinking of the pandemic because how can we avoid that now uh michael osterholm uh, uh, head of epidemiology at university of uh, minnesota um is uh, to me just a, a brilliant uh man who is um uh you know presented i think in a very rational way his take on the pandemic and how to respond to it. And his position has changed uh, slightly as things have gone along because we're all learning things every day. We're learning something new. But there's no um, uh, there's no politics about it. It's um, it, it's it's based on the goal oh, of getting to to science facts. out. Yeah. Science. Well, can, um, I want, science. The, the, this book that we're talking about has a lot of
0: science in it. Mm-hmm. And I want to uh, take a break and then return and uh, talk about Lincoln rhyme and his uh, ability to use this kind of science to solve crimes. Uh, if you join us late, my, my guest is Jeffrey Deaver. We're talking about his uh, his latest book, and uh, he and I'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking? This is D.G. Martin, and I'm visiting with Jeffrey Deaver about his uh about his latest book, The Midnight Lock, and about other things uh, that come up as we talk about that book. Um, so, um, Jeffrey Deaver, let's get back to Lincoln Rhyme. This is a Lincoln Rhyme book. Mm-hmm. You're 15th in this series. Correct, yes. And um, the book, I would just say that there are many different stories intertwined, woven in to make this book. And um, we start out uh, early in, early in the book, we start out in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And what's Lincoln Rhyme doing in the courtroom?
1: Sure. I, um, I'll back up uh, just, just briefly. I, um, I was a practicing lawyer for some years. I was in New York. And um, um, people ask me—and uh, I was writing fiction even, even then uh, at night. As you were a lawyer. As I was a lawyer. Uh, that's right. And people say, uh, well, um, why, don't, why, you, why have you not ever written a, a legal novel? And the uh, the answer to that is that, if you remember, my uh, template or my formula is a book that moves very quickly, over about two days. And uh, w- w- there's not a trial in the world that happens that quickly. There's so much preparation and uh, so much uh, time in the courtroom and, and time doing depositions and so forth, preparation work, uh, that it wouldn't work for that, that formula. But that's not to say that I don't enjoy putting in uh, legal scenes. And uh, as the locksmith has done something terrible, we think, remember we cut away from that first chapter, oh no, what's going to happen to this poor woman? Uh, We cut to Lincoln Rhyme in the courtroom, and uh, this isn't really giving anything away, but Lincoln Rhyme, being an expert witness, testifying in a trial against a mob boss, uh, apparently has made a mistake, and made a mistake about the evidence, which is uh, horrible for him. Uh, because that is that kind of defines. Well, can you explain who it is. that? It's kind of complicated
0: because uh, Lincoln Rhyme is able to pinpoint a killer's uh, identity by reason of a couple of grains of sand and, he might have on his presence, and it,
1: it, Lincoln Rhyme can tell you where that exactly. came from. He and makes the connection between the the mobster's home and a crime scene, and a certain uh, chemicals. The mobster momst- who is also the murderer uh, that is it is a murderer. Yeah, he's on trial for for murder in this. Uh, a homicide case, first-degree murder, uh, second-degree murder in New York uh, state. And um, so Lincoln has made the connection. So clearly the jury can infer that uh, the uh, mob boss, because he picked up this grain of sand in um, uh, at his house and then the grain of sand was found at the crime scene, the jury can infer that he was the one who was present and, and killed, the, uh, killed the victim. And then the uh, defense attorney, ha-ha, has had... Uh, some uh, experts of his own and introduces uh, the fact, kind of grinding down Lincoln Rhyme to admit uh, that, was there a construction uh, site in front of your house? Yes. Do the uh, wheels on your wheelchair contain uh, treads that could pick up things? And Lincoln admits, well, yes, that's true. And then the uh, defense attorney, uh, you know, uh, closes the noose, if that's the correct term, (laughs) uh seals his fate by uh, saying aha the exact same grains of sand that you analyzed were found in front of your house on the sidewalk that you wheeled by um just before the day before you analyzed this evidence and it's it's shocking well uh lincoln's uh you know devastated the uh, uh the defendant goes free because the jury you know could have been he left this grain of sand there but it's got to be beyond a reasonable doubt and this introduced an element of doubt uh, the mobster goes free but worse than that uh, political shenanigans going on in new york city i know that's a shock to you DG. that that has never happened we've never heard of that before have we <laughs> and so <laughs> and so um uh the the mayor is embarrassed it's a, a, a hot mayoral race coming up and so the mayor fires Lincoln Ryman says, you know, thou shalt never be a consultant again, and anybody who works with you on the NYPD is going to lose their jobs and may be arrested. And he has to take this strong stand because his opponent is pointing his finger at the mayor and saying, well, look how sloppy uh, the mayor is. He doesn't keep charge of the New York City Police Department, and this fellow is on the, the street again. Well, that's one of the subplots that runs uh, through the book. Of course, since the book is more than 30 pages long, we can deduce that that Lincoln maybe takes the risk to take on this uh, fellow, but that subplot, wow. a subplot about a QAnon kind of character, uh, continues. The locksmith uh, sneaking into uh, people's houses uh, and apartments uh, continues, and then the, um, uh, the Media Empire subplot continues, and at the end, they all come together. That's what I love about uh, writing thrillers. Uh, surprise, surprise, surprise. And then at the end, there's that moment where all the plots intersect, and um, you know the um, the answers are revealed. I hope in a surprising way. And I think I've got from my my feedback, I've got some pretty good twists and turns in there. Well, there are a lot of twists and turns, and it uh, it it is a long book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's a more
0: than 400 pages. Exactly. And so, yeah. the fan has to be not only um, somebody who loves you, but somebody who's uh, got time to read that whole, the,
1: the whole book. Well, I, I am getting, uh, because well, so, so, I know we have very little time and always enjoy talking to you, but I do want to say one thing. Um, with the um, um, the current uh, climate for entertainment, uh, I've been looking at what people enjoy and what do people do for entertainment. And I write entertaining books. You know, there's a little substance to it about journalism oh. and, uh, and so forth, but I, I write basically entertainments. And, uh, What am I up against? Well, I'm up against basically two things, streaming, uh, television, and movies, cinema. And you can probably throw in video games because a lot of people uh, play those uh, too, but they do that instead of reading. Uh, And there's been a decline in readership across the board. Why? Because it's easier to kick back with a remote control in your hand and channel surf than it is th- than uh, when you sit down with a book that requires more of a commitment. But I believe in my heart that a book is the most um, engaging and enduring creative experience we can have. And that when you see a, a movie or TV show, and you know the wonderful ones, and I, I I watch them myself, it's kind of it's kind of over with when it's over with. But a book stays with you. You know, we create the images in our our head, and so but as a nod. To what people like about TV, I've come up with what I'm calling a, a streaming style of fiction. And by that I mean my books are the same length as—well, uh, they're a bit shorter. Uh, this, The Midnight Lock a few uh, years ago would have been 500 pages. Now it's down to about 400. But much shorter chapters, much shorter paragraphs, much more dialogue. Uh, description is is minimal um i have very few uh you know ponderous introspective thoughtful sections where the um uh you know the characters think about things i try to move that into the um uh the visual world so that the uh the reader is actually having a streaming experience and the books move uh, much more quickly well,
0: i no. wish you could guide me with my radio programs to have that experience. (laughs) If you join us late, I'm visiting with Jeffrey Deaver and we're talking about um, his latest book. It's about, uh, we haven't talked about it, but it's got a name which uh, makes you think it might be about locks and locksmiths. But we haven't gotten to that. And I'd like to take a break and come back and uh, have Jeffrey Deaver tell us a little bit about what he learned about locks and locksmithing in preparation for this book. And I'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with Jeffrey Deaver. We're uh, talking about his work. Um, I want to talk uh, about what I told him I was going to talk about, and that is his latest book, The Midnight Lock. Mm-hmm. And um, there are so many things we want to talk about. But what I want to talk about now is what you had to do to— uh, you, the, the book is is all full of locksmith mm. tricks sure. and, and what it takes to be a locksmith. What—, what why did you want to learn about this, and what did you learn that you didn't know already in preparing for the
1: book? Sure. Um, well, I'm always looking for things that will make uh, good hooks. I call them hooks. Uh, the Burning Wire was about the power grid. The Cutting Edge was about uh, so- the South Asian jewelry trade. Um, my book, The, um, the Burning Wire, uh, uh, the um, A Broken Window, was about data mining and the dangers of that. And this is about. Uh, locks, both in the literal and the metaphoric sense—that is, how locked up our lives are, and how we open our our lives up by posting things on online and uh, you know TikTok and uh, uh, certainly other social media. But uh, the specific element of locks—I got the idea. Well, it actually came to me when I was locked out a couple of years ago, locked out of my house, and uh, I called a locksmith. And you know, my there was no danger. My dogs were inside. I was outside. The danger was my dogs were going to be hungry for an hour because i didn't get a chance to feed them right away but uh so uh the locksmith comes and within like three seconds the lock was open uh, after i proved it was my house of course they, they they do require you to do that and so um, i had I, uh, you know two thoughts oh i'm very happy i can get back into my house and feed my dogs and two there's the idea for a new <sighs> book and uh, so i created this for a fellow the locksmith who is uh, clearly mentally uh, unstable except he is a genius with locks. He's obsessed with with locks. And if a lock is invented, been invented, he has to open it. He has to crack it. And um, if he if he doesn't, he gets nervous, tense, angry. And uh, so I did a huge amount of research into it. And if you're going to ask me, did I try it? Yes, I did because you can buy uh, lock-picking tools. They're not illegal. I, I don't know about all jurisdictions, but uh, uh, they're, they're, to my knowledge, they're not illegal. And uh, you have these lock guns and these little. Uh, well,
0: you taught me something. I think, just lawyer to lawyer, that if uh, in many jurisdictions it's not illegal to own lock-picking material unless you're. Owning it for the purpose of uh, breaking in, and then it is a crime.
1: Yeah, it's it's the motive. Uh, Just like owning a gun. It's not necessarily illegal, uh, but if you use it for bad purposes. Um, But uh, I—so I bought the uh, the tools and uh, went to the very same door that this fellow had, uh, you know, opened in—I say three seconds. Well, it was probably 30 seconds, but it was very quick, under a minute at least. And— so I uh, gave it a try. Well, two hours later, <laughs> and after a number of words that I would not say uh, on the air, I said, "Okay, I understand how it works. There's this tension tool, and then you use something that looks like a um, um, like a, a dentist's pick to kind of push these pins out of the way." So I, I knew the theory of it, but I, I was just fascinated uh, with it. This and, is just sort of the common door, uh, residential door lock, uh, front door. Oh, good, good point, D.G. I had no interest in these, um, you know, electronic door locks on the web, the cloud, that probably right now 113-year-olds are are hacking into. You know, I had no interest in that. I've actually written about that in the, uh, I think it was the Steel Kiss. Uh, so I've written about that and hacking. Uh, no interest in that. These are the old-fashioned, I almost call them romantic types of locks, th- the designs of which go back hundreds of years and are very little changed from... Uh, from then, um, and the um, the um, the character, I, I almost gave his name away. I Don't want to do that. But the character, the locksmith, uh, sees an almost romantic side to these locks. He has such affection for them, and he has relationships with these locks. And and uh, some he um, uh, kind of he's kind of a misanthrope when it comes to comes to relationships and women. But these locks. Uh, he can fall in love with them, and uh, they can resist him, but then he's going to conquer them. Uh, and uh, they, they fall into a—he uh, falls into kind of a pattern of, of this behavior, looking for the more and more complex locks. And finally, he doesn't—at the end of the book, he doesn't want to break into any lock, which he could do. He has to go for the most difficult lock that he can find to break into, which, and that does have disastrous consequences. Well— well, well, um, you said that you got the tools, but did you go further than
0: that in terms of the more advanced uh, locksmithing that you talk about or that you write about in the book that the locksmiths used? That was
1: all. That was all research. Um, uh, yeah, I found what I, I'm. A, you read about it, but you didn't do it. Yeah, right? I'm, a, I'm a bit of a klutz, so I, I can't. I, I learned that I, if I couldn't pick a very simple lock, I certainly wasn't going to be able to do um, uh, the more sophisticated ones.
0: Well, you sure. Integrated locksmithing and locks, and made in in terms of uh, sort of supplements and guides to um, other things that you wove into the book with uh, other plots, with the several plots that you wove in to make it a book that, when you got to the end of it after four hundred and twenty some pages, you felt like you'd not only been entertained, you'd been
1: educated. Well, I want people to to learn things. The uh, for instance. Um, uh, one of the elements in the book, something i didn't know about before, but it's the the job of content moderator on these social uh, uh networking uh, platforms and um, you know uh, places like youtube and of course the classics facebook twitter and so forth uh these platforms employ tens of thousands of content moderators uh to make sure nothing inappropriate goes up and then but they have the they they have the power of the uh uh you know of the uh we call it the uh, uh the cutting room uh, floor when the the censors would would snip actual film to take scenes out of uh movies back in the 50s and 60s and they have that that power uh or they can let something they can let something through and uh, you know i i don't I, i'm this isn't the exact quote it's in the book somewhere but um i think um he, the um uh, a character works for a youtube kind of yeah. Platform. It's, uh, it's fictional, but, uh, but it's very similar to YouTube. And uh, he, he thinks, you know, if someone were to, just one person were to sit down and watch every video that has been uploaded on this platform, and it's there now, it's available now it would take, I don't know, 10,000 years, years 10,000 years to watch it. And that doesn't even count what's being uploaded now. We
0: we got to stop, but I guess I can (laughs) close on the idea that if you want to read all of Jeffrey Deaver's books, uh, you're going to have to commit some time to it. Maybe not as much as the content moderator does. But (laughs) Jeffrey Deaver, thank you for your new book. Thanks for taking time to visit. And thanks for your wonderful article about what it's like to live in Chapel Hill. Uh, just school. a
1: wonderful town. I absolutely love it here. Well, thank you, D.G. Always good talking to you.
0: Uh, thanks to Jeffrey Deaver, and thanks uh, to you for listening. Uh, this is D.G. Martin, and I'll be back here before you know it.